You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off.
think I'm pretty? Yes, and your eyes sparkle so. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Ashley West. Hi, Mike. Hi, Sam. We are kicking off a month of discussing adult films with a look at Jared Damiano's Memories Within Miss Aggie. Released in 1974, the film tells the tale of our titular Miss Aggie, a woman of indeterminate age who lives in a remote cottage with her companion, Richard. She struggles to recall the circumstances that brought her to this place in time, which leads us to a series of flashbacks where we learn about Miss Aggie, though she remembers herself as different women as she relives the past. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, turn off the podcast and track down the film. We will still be here. So, Ashley, when was the first time you saw Memories Within Miss Aggie, and what did you think? I first saw Miss Aggie when I was living in France. This dates me because it was back in the middle 80s, and it was actually the first X-rated videotape I ever rented. It was rent one, get one free deal at the local VHS, and this was about 1985, I think. So I decided to get two films. My first two X-rated videos, video rentals, and I decided to get two by Gerard Damiano because I'd read about him and his achievements in the 1970s. And the two films I chose were Miss Aggie and The Devil in Miss Jones. And God knows what effect that had on me because you'd be hard pressed to find two bleaker, two blacker adult films than those two. I watched them back to back, part in fascination, part in horror, and felt thoroughly depressed by the end of both of them, which isn't the normal reaction you'd expect when you uh, when you watch a classic adult film. But over the years since then, I've watched it several times. I have a lot of affection for it. I don't know if it's necessarily a masterpiece on a cinematic or an erotic level, but my fascination with it has has really grown to the extent that about 10, 15 years ago, I made it my mission to track down every single living person associated with it and find out about their memories. Um, I even traveled to Pennsylvania to visit the locations that you'll see in the film and meet some of the locals who helped in the production. So in short, Miss Aggie has played an important role in my film viewing life. When you rented these films, were you looking for more things that appealed to your prurient interests? You know, it was at that stage in my life that was wanting to see anything that was a little bit taboo. So having lived in England for a few years and through the video nasty scare, um, anything that was banned by the British Board of uh, Film Censors was, was of interest to me. And of course, hardcore, which wasn't available in England in any shape or form at that stage, was also interest. So I was really just going through a phase of trying to see things which I wasn't, I was being told that I shouldn't be seeing. What a rude awakening. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And Sam, how about you? When did you first see this one? I only saw this, I don't know, probably four or five years ago, maybe, because much like Ashley, the first hardcore movie I saw that wasn't just, you know, on like Skinamax or something was The Devil and Miss Jones. And it was at a time when I was going down this 
transgressive cinema rabbit hole that kind of started with Solo and wound me to some of the artier hardcore films. And when I saw Devil and Miss Jones, it like didn't occur to me that anyone would have even made something like that. So when I found out that Damiano had this kind of like stretch of gothic, crazy women hardcore movies, I was like, okay, I have to see as many of them as I can find, which, you know, took a little while, but at least now there is a lovely addition for everyone to watch. My friend Dion Conflict, who was on our Raw Talent episode years and years ago, he actually gave me a VHS of Memories Within Miss Aggie. And I'm not sure why. It's not like a typical thing where he would give me movies, but he has given me a few over the years. And he was just like, you need to watch this. This is one that you have to check out. And being a bad friend, it took me a long time before I finally did see it. And then when I did kind of like y'all a little bit mind blowing because I'm just like, Oh, Dan gave me a porn film. I don't know what to expect out of this. And I didn't know, I didn't ever really even look it up to see the story of it. I just kind of put it in blind and I'm like, what the hell am I watching? What is this? We're set in this pastoral Pennsylvania area. There's all this snow. I'm thinking it, it reminds me of like McCabe and Mrs. Miller kind of thing. They're all trapped in a one single house. I'm like, what is this movie? And then we have this whole dialogue of Miss Aggie talking to Richard and the turns this movie took, even as soon as we got to the first flashback. I was stunned. I had no idea what I was in for and what a wild ride this film delivers. And then, of course, there's the the shock ending without wanting to offer any spoilers, which took me by surprise in terms of its intensity and its the shocking nature of it as well. The opening scene with Richard, I immediately – and you, you said we're giving spoilers, yeah, right, Mike? spoilers are fine. We're, we'll be okay. okay. I mean, now that the movie is so easy to find, you've got that beautiful Vinegar Syndrome edition – Folks should be able to see this. And yeah, so I I warned about spoilers. We're definitely in spoiler territory. So when I saw the opening scene, I was like, oh, Richard's dead. And then and then I thought to myself, like, okay, you've just seen too many horror movies. Like, maybe he just has some sort of illness. And and so by the time the movie got to the ending, I had convinced myself that, like, I was just reading too much into it. So when we got to the end, I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> justification. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of psycho going on with her relationship with Richard. I can picture her doing both voices. You know, in, in some quarters of the US, it was actually billed as being the, the sequel or the follow-up to Devil and Miss Jones, as if the two films, you know, were naturally intended to be viewed together. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that was why I wanted to see it, because the context that I had heard of it in was that it was some sort of follow-up. Like, I, I don't know if I heard that it was a direct sequel, but it was like in the same universe, sort of, which I don't know if you could say. It, it's in that like extended universe that includes Story of Joanna and Legacy of Satan, which isn't a hardcore movie, but feels like it could be at any moment. And even like through the looking glass where you're expecting, like if you haven't seen a lot of these weirder hardcore movies, you're just like, what <laughs> the whole time? 
It's interesting seeing the reviews of the time because a lot of them talk about uh, you know Ingmar Bergman and and and, and Faulkner influences or even the Three Faces of Eve uh, as being an influence. But when I spoke to Ron Wertheim, who was the writer of the script, uh, he'd worked with Damiano already on a number of films dating back to the late '60s. In fact, he was production manager on Deep Throat two years before, almost exactly two years before this was made. He insisted that uh, Psycho was was the model. Psycho was his favorite film, and that was his inspiration. Although he said the actual inspiration was was one line um, that he heard somebody say at a party one night, and he actually inserted it as a, a line of dialogue, which was, I don't know the difference between wishing and happening. And he just thought about the idea of somebody's fantasies being commingled to such an extent with reality that they can't tell them apart. So that kind of mixed in with the, the you know the psycho themes, I think really is you know speaks to what he was trying to achieve with the script there. I could be talking out of my ass, but it reminded me a lot of Altman's images as well. Oh, uh, totally, and also LaRaz's symptoms. I don't even know if that would have been available for any of them to view at the time. I think Symptoms is 74, but it's such a similar premise where it's like this woman, Donald Pleasance's daughter, Angela, is like alone in this country house. And she says she has kind of similar dialogue where you don't know if she's making things up or if she's actually remembering things that happened and it has kind of a similar vibe of sexual menace, although that's not a hardcore film, so it, it plays out very differently, but like it would make such a great double feature. That's really interesting to see the connections. Another connection, by the way, with Devil and Miss Jones, which we were talking about before, is the fact that it was actually shot in the same, same house. Uh, an apple packing plant in Milanville in uh, in Pennsylvania. You know, they became friendly with the locals when they shot Devil and Miss Jones and actually went back, shot in the same house, stayed in the in, in house as well, and also shot at a nearby church, uh, a disused church, uh, and, and a bridge in, in the memorable scene with, with uh, Eric Edwards and Kim Pope at the beginning. I was reminded of a much later film, which was Lost Highway, this whole idea of the way that the Bill Pullman character likes to remember things his own way and that you have two actors playing ostensibly the same character. I watched the movie. I kind of forgot about it. I was rereading about it, and I was just like, wait a second. My memory was so fuzzy that I couldn't remember the transitions between the Aggie of the present and the Aggie of the past. And I was thinking to myself, was this just a cheap trick to have three scenes of hardcore sex and then you just integrate them in here by calling the characters the same names you know you just say oh well this was me in the past and you know the first one is is you put kim pope and eric edwards and i'm like well kim pope is blonde and they even have this whole thing like oh yeah you were blonde in the past and uh richard's like no you weren't you were never blonde and i'm just like is this just covering up a way of taking these three very disparate scenes and integrating them together in a super cheap way. And you just overdub dialogue because I've seen movies like that before, you know, but it is not. And, and, and it's much more clever than that. And the way that they integrate the past with the present, I was like, Oh wow, this is really well done. So when I rewatched it, I was like, Oh, thank goodness. It wasn't just that exercise in let's take a bunch of loops and string them all together into a feature film. 
It also has that weird, almost anti-erotic sense that Devil and Miss Jones and Story of Joanna have. And I think this might just be because of the score, but when I rewatched it yesterday to talk about it here, I paid, I think, more attention to the score than I have in past watches. And it's like, even though the sex scenes are shot well with these performers who know what, know what they're doing, just this ominous music, it's, it's almost like you're watching like a, a woman's torment or something. And at any moment, sh- like someone might get decapitated, but like, that's not how it, the sex scenes happen. But because of that dissonant music, it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it strikes me that only one of the three sex scenes is sort of deliberately filmed for erotic effect, which is the first one in super close up between Eric and uh, and Kim Pope. But even that, you're absolutely right. The score for the first half of that scene is more akin to to a horror film and really puts you on edge. So it is this total o- at odds feeling between what you're seeing and what you're hearing. And then I think the music, even when it's not ominous, it's almost this like tender emotional music. Like there's none of that stereotypical, like sexy kind of funkier score. And I always sort of wondered why that first sex scene, unless maybe it got trimmed out, doesn't, it doesn't have a cum shot. Yeah. So it just very much went against what I was expecting from the first sex scene in the movie, but in a good way. You're absolutely right. It feels to me as if um, Damiano was trying to break away from the already being established conventions of porn and showing that you could incorporate explicit sex in a film without it necessarily being prurient or titillating. And, you know, he does that in, in, in Miss Jones and Miss Aggie in such a way as to, as to being quite jarring um, in a way that we're kind of not used to nowadays because we've sort of had fewer directors willing to take those risks since then. It is jarring to me. There's this really abrupt shift where it's like he makes a handful of hardcore comedies and then all of a sudden there's Devil and Miss Jones and Legacy of Satan and Miss Aggie and Story of Joanna. And so it's just like all these movies in a row that are really grim. Really dark. Yeah, it's so strange coming, especially after Deep Throat, which was such a big hit. And it was obviously such a uh, sort of playful in many respects comedy. And instead of repeating that template, he goes for these three films, Temple of Miss Jones, Miss Aggie, and then uh, uh, Story of Joanna, which are super dark. I always wondered whether it was a, a reaction against the lack of seriousness which uh, was accorded to Damiano in, in that early part of his career. His films, well, Deep Throat was making an enormous amount of money, yet he was still a figure of, of, of ridicule um, by a lot of film critics. And so to sort of reverse that, I felt that maybe he was trying to engage in more serious themes to try and show that a, that a, that a porn director could actually tackle weightier, weightier topics. It reminds me a little bit of what Jean Rollin was doing when he first started making hardcore movies, where he pretty much did it just so that he could fund the, you know, bizarro horror movies that he wanted to make, but was adamant with producers that, you know, even if they were hardcore movies, he still wanted to 
do it the way he wanted to do it. And so he, he has a couple of those like very gothic, almost horror movie, like hardcore films that do kind of remind me of devil and miss Jones before he realized, I guess that there's just no market for that. But it's just so fascinating that there's this like little window where a couple of directors were noticeably trying to do something different than the f- established formula. Before we leave this topic of, of the way that music kind of plays into that, we shouldn't forget that the, the two people responsible for the music you know, were, were Rupert Holmes, um, who was then a struggling songwriter, but within a couple of years was actually being nominated for a Grammy for uh, the album for A Star Is Born. Um, that's the Chris Christopherson Streisand version. Uh, then became famous for the Pina Colada song, uh, which was obviously a number one hit. But that was only a few years later. And the soundtrack producer, Jeffrey Lesser, actually has gone on to win several Emmys, mostly for children's TV, for music on, on those. So, you know, Damiano should be given a lot of credit for the fact that he accumulated maybe people who were at the start of their career, but people who would definitely go on to uh, mainstream film careers and, and, and careers of some achievement. The cameraman, Joao Fernandez, obviously Harry Flex went on to uh, shoot horror films. Arthur Marks became a, a horror film cinematographer. Even the, the, the continuity um, lady, Alexandra Fedak, was actually a, a really notable script supervisor for a lot of films and television commercials using a different name in the 1920s as well. Just while we're on the topic of, of the crew, Bob Obradovich was a veteran makeup artist who did this, the transformation of Miss Aggie, sort of the old and, and new. And he was an Emmy Award winner for, for several films in the 1960s. He worked on The Three Days of the Condor and Magnificent Yankee, I think. There's a real departure, I think, to, to your point, Sam, to use people in the crew that were uh, had aspirations beyond just the porn and, and they were learning their way as, as a sort of training school. Well, the actors that he chose are really good actors as well. I mean, Eric Edwards and Harry Reams are two of the luminaries for me as far as actually being able to carry a scene, both dramatic and sexual. I think he hired three types of actors for this film. There were the theater actors who didn't get involved in any of the um, the sex. That's uh, Miss Aggie, Deborah Ashira, and um, Patrick Farrelly, who played the, the lead role. Both of them were, were quite notable theater actors. You can see coverage of them in, in, the, in the newspapers of the time, dating back to the 60s. I mean, Deborah Ashira actually um, studied with Sandy Meisner, um, studied the acting at the Sorbonne in, in Paris and so on, appeared in, in, as an extra in a number of Parisian films before she moved to uh, to, to the US, back to the US. And Patrick Farrelly as well. I met him just before he passed um, about 15 years ago. He was, you know, he had a whole career in, in regional theater, summer stock, dinner theater, TV soap operas, and so on. Both of them, I think, were chosen for their uh, acting ability. And then the second category is the porn actors, you know, whether it's Eric Edwards, who had a long career as an amateur actor or semi-professional actor, Kim Pope, who had acted since she was about six years old uh, in a number of, of TV shows and so on. And then you've got Harry Reams, who obviously was a was a, an aspiring thespian who only did pornography in the first place so that he could survive longer as a, as a starving actor. So you're absolutely right. The, the choice of actors was, was very deliberate and sort of complemented the, the, the professional nature of the crew as well. Yeah, I remember the first time I watched this thinking like, is that an actor in aging makeup? But she's so great with it. 
Yeah, I was trying to figure out if how old she was supposed to be, and I did like towards the end when they show her younger, and you can really see the difference then. Like, oh, wow, okay, they really did age her up very well. Yeah, she was actually 32 when she shot Miss Aggie, but she does look a lot older in the, in the opening scenes. And I think it also makes the makeup work so much more impressive when you see the cleaned up version versus one of the like fuzzy, you know, internet bootlegs where it's sort of harder to tell, like, is she actually older or is this bad makeup or aging makeup? But it's, I'm so glad that the restoration exists. We talked a little bit about how the music adds to the dreamy nature of it, and definitely the dialogue does as well, especially as you get things being repeated. And even within just smaller exchanges, you get things being repeated, like when Kim Pope meets Eric Edwards as what Richard won and Aggie won, and they start to repeat things even within there, as far as like her saying, I feel funny and him, I do too. And then she says, I feel funny again, shortly thereafter. And, you know, it could be like, Oh, well, somebody doesn't know how to write dialogue, but no, that's completely not the case. It's very much these things come back because Miss Aggie is so haunted. She's reliving things in a very, she's the most unreliable narrator that I've seen in a long time because of the way that she, changes herself into these different people and also the way that these different people will repeat themselves or ask strange questions or show up in like a Mountie outfit the way that Eric Edwards does. I love that it comes back at the end too. It's not just a one-off Mountie outfit, but that thing that you brought up about the recurrences and the repeating dialogue, it really reminds me a lot of absurdist theater in the 60s and 70s and the way that scenes would be paralleled to each other by those kinds of repetitions, whether they're more or less obvious. And so I I love that here. You know, I think I was put off by the dialogue in my early viewings, feeling that it was quite leaden and, and simplistic, and as you say, repetitive. And when I when I put that to Ron Wertheim, when I spoke to him, he insisted that what he was trying to do was create a sort of a dreamlike feel, uh, an absurdist dreamlike feel, where people weren't able to express themselves very clearly and w- w- was sort of wandering around in this dreamlike state, trying to make head or tail of things almost like um, their subconscious was was mixing in with, with with reality and that sort of leaden feeling that you have. So he, his contention was, for what it's worth, that that was uh, entirely uh, intentional. When I, I guess when I watched it after that, it, it made more sense to me and I, I was more, more tolerant of it. It also reminds me of the way that people sometimes have a tendency to fixate on memories and replay the memory And especially as you age or as you go through things like trauma, memories can sort of change. And so Aggie remembering these like different periods of her life or events that happened at different times in her life definitely gave me that dream memory crossover sense. And she's trying to control her 
memories and dreams. There's even the part towards the end after um, the sex scene with Eric Edwards where Kim Pope, I think she's back looking at the mirror and he's supposed to be on the bed and she looks over and he's gone and she says something like, you know, no, I don't want it that way. Something bad happened. It's like this whole thing is Aggie trying to remember what bad thing happened, but then at the same time not wanting to remember what that bad thing was. Yeah, that I think is so much like Altman's images, which you brought up earlier, where she has those scenes where she sort of tries to remember away events. Like she tries to rewrite her own memories and erase people who were in her life, who she had sexual relationships with. She has a line as well, and I can't remember if it's Kim Pope that says it or somebody else, but she says, uh, do you believe in fairy tales? And listeners of the show know how much I love fairy tales, especially in in movies. And the next sequence, the Mary Stewart and Harry Ream sequence, her being locked in a tower by her mother and him using that ladder to get up to her to have the sex scene. It's like so Rapunzel to me. And then her masturbating with a baby doll and... I mean, this kind of weird reverse birth thing that she's doing. And I'm just like, okay, well, is that the bad thing? Was it that she had a baby out of wedlock or did she have an abortion? And I like that they just leave these things hanging out there. And you don't know what bad things she did to get locked in this tower, in this whatever building she's in. And I'm like, well, is she actually locked away in an insane asylum right now? Or is that what she's remembering is that she was locked away by somebody else? Maybe Harry Reams is one of the guards at the place. I don't know. But again, I love that we have all these answers and that this movie is asking or making me ask these questions of it. In a very disturbing way as well. The, the doll scene, I think, traumatized me more than most scenes in the movie. To be fair, it doesn't feel gratuitous like so many films, like so many scenes uh, in porn films. It feels like there's something that the director or the writer is alluding towards, but is always slightly out of grasp. Yeah, it's such a powerful scene. And because the first sex scene feels so much more conventional, you at least the first time I saw it, I was not ready for that. And it just it's shot in such a incredible way where it really does take on those kinds of symbolic resonances that i think sometimes porn directors from this period were going for even in like an artsier way but it just it's unforgettable although i i guess my interpretation when she talks about something bad happening and harry reams comes up into her barn tower <laughs> And she she has that line that gets repeated throughout the film where she says, I've never been this close to a man before. And then in that version, she says, except for my my father before he left. And so it's like, does she mean close to her father in a sexual way or just in like a family proximity way? The first sex scene was, I would call it romantic. It's very loving, very soft, you know, it's just... So like love in the afternoon type of sex scene. And in this one, we've got, yeah, the baby doll masturbation going on. We've got Harry giving her anal sex and the music just turns really dark when that happens. And 
talk about putting you on edge and I'm just like, what is going to happen? Of course, a, a cum shot happens in this one, but it's just like, my God, this music is putting me on edge. What are you doing to me, Rupert Holmes? It's dread inducing. Yeah, it's it's wild that this is happening. And then, yeah, when they go back out of it, she's got her shaking her head, you know, the, the original Aggie shaking her head. And she's like, he said I wasn't doing anything bad, but why can't I get past it? And it's like, okay, what is it? Sex is sex the bad thing or what else is bad? Because it feels like there's a lot more bad stuff in your life, Aggie. And what did you make to the third sex scene, which was sort of in a brothel? So again, I was like, okay, was this just cut in? But then it really works with the transition of her with the cat and focusing in on that cat and then having the cat in the next scene. And that was such a strange scene because sometimes it feels like the man wasn't even there, the way that she's interacting with him and the way that she's putting on this whole display for the man, but then at the same time for us as the audience. And again, like, yeah, you said, it's very much set in a brothel, her with all the lingerie on, very much a like a, it's felt like 1930s, 40s type of thing for me. And I'm just like, what the hell's happening here? And just her really talking very dirty. And it was like, okay, I, I didn't think Miss Aki could talk this way. <laughs> I, I felt like I was clutching at my pearls as she's just like fingering her ass and like yelling at this guy, fuck my ass. I'm like, holy shit. Sometimes in movies like this, where there's not a lot of exposition and there's a lot left up to your imagination, I kind of found myself wondering, like, is this supposed to be Aggie's mother? Because it just really did not feel like it could be a past version of her. It really, it also reminds me of the kind of like peep booth environments where you're doing that, but you're separated by glass, whereas the guy's just right there. It's such a strange scene. I wonder how much was dictated actually for this scene by what actually happened on set that day. Because I remember reading in Harry Reams' autobiography, um, which was called Here Comes Harry Reams, came out in the mid-70s, that the, Chris Kirsten, I think his name was, um, who is the the male in the brothel scene, who I don't think you ever see in any other adult film of the era. Harry maintained that he had serious performance problems in that he was meant to be the assertive male who was uh, going to a brothel and essentially uh, taking advantage of, of a prostitute. And when I spoke to Harry years later, Harry still remembered that because it, the, the scene I think was due to take place in a morning or to be filmed over a morning. It took all day. The guy couldn't get it up um, despite the help from Darby, despite the help from Mary Stewart, apparently who was on set and, and, and tried to help him out. And in the end, they decided to twist the scene and make Miss Aggie the, the sexual aggressor, almost taunting her John there, uh, which is kind of interesting to me because Darby at the time was actually a call girl as well in real life. She was a, she had a sort of an S&M call girl business and which she had to sort of talk aggressively to, to her clients and so on. So she, she still remembers the scene as well and, and remembers the, the uh, aggression, which sort of uh, Damiano asked her to come out with when it was clear that they weren't going to get a lot of performance out of the male. I don't know if that uh, if that means that it changed it significantly from the original script, but that's uh, that's certainly what happened on the day. It still makes it feel menacing, and even though it's so different from the Harry Reem scene, I do think there was also at least 
for me, a sense that like violence might happen at some point, just because she seems so aggressive to the point of almost being angry. And I love Darby. I, I think she's a great and she gives such an amazing, like believable performance there. Yeah, completely. And by the way, just as an aside, she actually um, reprises an encounter with a client in the French Connection. The scene was shot and not included in the film, but was included as an extra on one of the recent DVD releases. Uh, and you can actually see Darby in her apartment, which doubled as a dungeon um, in a sort of similarly uh, sexually aggressive way. You're $50 short. The path of the scene's a hundred and a half. Hey, Frenchie, you better come up with a scratch. I got a man waiting downstairs. That's a shame that it got left out, but I will definitely have to seek that out. That sounds amazing. The movie does have that feel of Devil Miss Jones through the whole thing, but this was the area where I really felt that she was the most Miss Jones's. That that whole idea of like I really need to get fucked right now, and that whole you know she says in the voiceover, I think you know that that ache that she couldn't get rid of that ache, and. I also really liked that transition when we go from her putting on that display to the 69 scene and you get that great flash cut editing before they go into that. I thought that was a really nice way of doing it. And we get a lot of great editing throughout this entire film and then even some, some interesting audio effects too. Like when she's first speaking to the Kim Pope reflection in the mirror, the way that Aggie's voice echoes. I thought that was kind of nice. But yeah, this flash cut editing. And there's another, I think there's a little bit more of that as the movie goes on. But it was very nice of a way to transition between the guy sitting there watching and then boom, he's in the action. That is kind of what makes me think of symptoms is that idea that maybe someone has punished her or she's punishing herself just for having that sense of sexual desire that you sort of see expressed through the different versions of her but it's it's so sad because after we get this last sex scene i don't think that we get any more sex and it's just her and richard kind of her reliving their first meeting which again completely echoes the kim pope and eric edwards meeting there's again similar dialogue you know I ain't seen you around here before. The tea line. I love that recurring tea line where he's like, I don't drink tea. And the two cups that are there on the table the whole time, too. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, why would she have two cups if this guy's dead? But And how she talks about how she had golden hair, and he talks about how she's a princess. Again, going back to the fairy tale thing. I mean, and what she, she talks about how he can sleep in her memory room. And I'm just like, wow, talk about in her mind palace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and you're, you're lying about, I ain't never been this close to a man again, shows up there. It's just, it's wild. I love this way that we just kind of keep circling around with this. And it's like the movie ends in such a way that there is no resolution. You know, she's just going to keep doing what she's doing. She might even just remember for five seconds what happened 
and then go on about her day. It kind of reminds me of the end of Memento, where it's just like, okay, yeah, I've solved the case, but I don't want to solve the case. I don't want to know what the mystery was. Now I'll go after Joe Pantoliano and kill him, or however that movie ends or begins. I can't even remember. It's been that long. Yeah, the elusiveness of memory. It's such a strange topic for a hardcore film, though. That he made these movies, and that there was a string of them, and it's not like these are just some sort of weird exception to the rule because there were so many of them. It's like, Oh, there was actually like a movement here and other people were doing kind of similar things at times. This is just amazing that it wasn't just fuck films, you know, that there is so much more to it. And I know the New York times did not like this movie. I read the review of it. And I was just kind of floored. They were like, it's so pretentious and just giving no credit where credit I feel is very due. Yeah, I think it was Vincent Canby, wasn't it? I remember him saying it was an overcooked, guilt-stuffed cabbage of a movie, uh, which stuck in my brain because it's a, a, a catchy. Yeah, do you did you realize that um, Damiano was actually offended enough by the Canby review that he actually wrote a response to the review and got it published in the Times as well? No, wow. Uh, he, he wrote he wrote a letter. Basically, he was saying it was mean spirited and designed to you know minimize his achievements he took issue with the fact that can be started his review talking about the unpleasant smell in the world theater where where he went to see it then he talked about how uh, damiano was an ex-hairdresser then he mentioned that that um harry reams had um two roles um sort of in other words you know it must have been a cheap film or else the production manager wouldn't also have been the uh, the you know one of the actors talked about his mustache a little bit too much so it was it was snippy it was it was definitely mean-spirited i think damiano was justified in in writing uh, a response to that which to new york times credit uh, they published that's amazing that they published it i i feel like mike there have been past projection booth episodes where we've talked about how nasty vincent camby is so it was it did he was he the one who wrote the awful exorcist 2 review i'm not sure if he criticized anybody's chubby knees in this film or not that would be the crowning achievement like saying that you didn't like the movie partly because a 14 year old had chubby knees it's like <laughs> all right <laughs> yeah and that the movie theater smelled antiseptic okay that's in the the producer and director's control is how the movie theater smells but also, I do think there is this really frustrating double standard. I mean, even at the time when hardcore reviews were showing up in places like the New York Times, it's I just get this sense that it's like a no-win situation. You can't give people room to try to do something new. Instead, you're just criticizing like, oh, well, you didn't go to film school and your production isn't fully staffed. It's like, did, would he say that about a non-hardcore independent movie that had the same limitations? Like, come on. And it was prevalent, to be honest, uh, across a lot of the newspaper reviews of the time, uh, just like you say, Sam. Damiano actually gave some some really, I thought, insightful and smart interviews at the time, not even defending uh, adult films or explicit sex films. He actually declared in in several interviews that porn was dying and that there was no need to have uh, a porn industry because eventually Hollywood movies would incorporate explicit sex in them. Naturally, but what he said was that the only reason for the success of porn films was censorship, 
and censorship was creating a sense of fascination um, around around sex films that was making people curious to go and see them which I thought was a really smart point. So he pointed the finger at, at Nixon and about the, the, the FBI busts and so on, and it sort of accused them of creating the demand that he was, uh, he was satisfying, which I thought was an interesting angle. Instead of uh, you know, necessarily just claiming that, that, that sex films were, were, were a viable art form in, in themselves, he, he sort of predicted their demise, uh, which you know, in 1974 was, was quite an interesting thing to say. And of course, Harry Reams, two months after the uh, Miss Aggie opened, was arrested in his home in New York for Deep Throat. Um, it was now sort of two years since Deep Throat had come out, and he was arrested on a warrant issued by Memphis, Tennessee, um, for interstate transportation of pornography. So in some respects, that, that very much tied into what Damiano was saying. Did they think that Harry Reams himself was like carrying film reels across state lines? No, they they didn't. But that was the that was the crux of it. That if somebody involved in the making of it could be um, by association be uh, guilty of, of interstate transportation uh, of pornography, then suddenly everybody in the industry, uh, and by industry I mean the entire film industry, uh, was at risk. Which is why Harry was able to pull out quite a lot of you know Hollywood big names like like Warren Beatty, for example, helping him raise funds for his defense. I mean, it was a farce, like you say, but for a time, it, it was it was a, a rather risk of setting a rather dangerous precedent. Yeah, it's such a crazy witch hunt to think about now. But I mean, of course, stuff like that is still going on with I, I remember even a year or two ago, in England, they were talking about this whole list of things that they were going to ban in pornographic films. It's like still... Well, there's movies we're going to talk about this month that couldn't get made now because they have rape or fisting or violence of any kind. And there's just all these strange arbitrary rules around stuff that just came about, you know, because of like Meese and these guys in the eighties, when the pendulum starts to swing back and we get even more puritanical than we were under Nixon. So I think that this film really plays well into this idea of sex being dirty and sex being bad and sex being something you should feel guilty about. And that even more than murder, I think is what plagues Aggie so much. And it was serious at the time. I mean, Harry faced a maximum of 15 years in prison. That was the charges, $20,000 in fines. I, I got to know him reasonably well in his later years, and he attributes the alcoholism that he suffered f from for about 15 years to the persecution that he went through. And his alcoholism was, was severe. I mean, it was a nasty period in his life, which he, you know, he, he uh, haunted him right until the end of his life. He was fortunate enough to be able to pull him out of that and, and create a sort of epilogue to his life in which he uh, escaped the, uh, the, you know, the, the demons of addiction. But um, the, the very human cost, I think, of this persecution of um, artists, filmmakers, call, call it what you like, um, I think, you know, needs to be remembered. And even to that point you made earlier about how some of the people working on this production went on to have mainstream careers and Hollywood careers, but were often, you know, forced to use different names. It's such a shame that there couldn't be that actual crossover that Damiano was talking about and that I, I know certain other directors wanted, which is this idea of being able to have sex in films. And 
Of course, there are some directors that do, like Catherine Brayot, but the themes in Miss Aggie and definitely Devil and Miss Jones, it feels like they're still so relevant because I think there is just such a, especially in this country, a weird amount of shame and guilt associated with sex. Ashley, can you tell me a little bit more about Kim Pope? Because I was looking at her CV and it felt like she worked a ton from like 70 to 77 and then she just disappeared. Kim is a, a rare example of somebody who was quite active during the softcore years and then made the transition into hardcore when um, films became more explicit in the early 70s. As I mentioned before, she had been a, a child actor, actually, uh, from Jersey originally. Her parents had, had um, uh, encouraged her interest in being an actor, and she had been on stage, she had been in films and, and television. It was a time when you know, being a in an off-way, off-Broadway uh, production might earn you something like, you know, 600 bucks for a, an eight-week run. An adult film could earn you, you know, if it was a, a two-day production, um, could earn you as much as sort of two or 300 bucks just for those two days. So it enabled you taking part in these films, which nobody would ever see, obviously, and would never get released in on videotape or DVD because they hadn't been invented. Um, in other words, they were completely anonymous, or so they thought. Would enable you to to make your living as an actor much longer. Would, it, would extend your life as a, as, a, as a struggling actor. So Kim did that. Um, she got involved with uh, the wrong kind of person and actually got married to a gangster uh, in about 1975, and got into real uh, some really difficult um, situations with him. And it was mainly because of uh, trying to escape him that she exited the industry. Uh, she wasn't running away from the industry. She's never regretted anything she's done. Um, still, um, I, I, I still see her, and she still actually acts. Um, a couple of years ago, I actually saw her in a, an off, off, off Broadway musical, which she wrote, starred in, um, and directed. So she's she's still out there. Um, her her issue was that she, in about 1975, 1976, she felt that her life was at risk, um, and so escaped, changed her name, uh, and started a new life. Um, and that meant turning her back on her friends and the industry, which you know she called home, and the people that she knew well in it. And that was really why she sort of disappeared into in, into thin air at the time. Not a reflection on the industry, like I say, more a reflection of the kind of people that she got involved with who weren't actually industry related. That's so sad. Although I mean, it's incredible to hear that she you know is still acting and. Especially, I always find it maybe relieving is the wrong word, but I definitely enjoy hearing, which I think certainly comes up on your show, when some of the older performers talk about how it was a positive time in their lives and something they enjoyed doing and don't regret. Perhaps the most common refrain that, that I come across is that people don't regret the industry. What they do regret is the outside world's attitude towards people in the industry and that's what causes them sometimes to have shame or to hide um, or to even disown their past not so much what they did but how people treat them and, and the stigma that is attached to them i found that that to be a nuance that that uh, um, uh, is prevalent with the people i've spoken to and just to 
keep talking about Kim, it just occurred to me, Kim was actually prosecuted and threatened with many years in jail uh, a, a year or so before Miss Aggie uh, for her involvement in a film called Deep Sleep, which was directed by Alfred Soule, who you may know from Alice, Sweet Alice and Communion, who actually sadly passed away this week. Yeah, I read that. I was very bummed about that. He was such a nice man. Super guy, really nice guy. Um, and Kim and Alfred were the two main people who were prosecuted for Deep Sleep. Kim talks about it nowadays as if she, she honestly thought that her life was, was, was about to end. You know, 30 years in jail for someone who's 25 pretty much would, would write off her, 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 her adult life. So it was something that, that uh, stayed with her, actually shapes her politics to this day. She's very. Uh, anti-authoritarian uh, and, and so on. And that's kind of shaped by what the government tried to do to her back in the day. And that was, that was a crazy situation, not to go down a rabbit hole there, but that was a film that was made in, in New Jersey that was shipped across the country and they prosecuted the distributors because of the states that it had flown across. Not, you know, hadn't touched down in, but it had flown across certain states and those states um, prosecuted um, her and, and, and Alfred and as is pointed out in the podcast that we did on it, little plug, it was eventually settled by them paying off the, the judge. They uh, they made a payment to the judge who was presiding in the case on the golf course towards the end of the trial, and and that's how they got off. Uh, ridiculous times, ridiculous situation, um, and hopefully we're better now because of it, but uh, who knows if that's true. It's a wonderful justice system we have here in this country. <laughs> The last time I spoke with Alfred, he had talked about how he was trying to, or maybe they already were making a series, might have been a Netflix series, about that whole deep sleep debacle. And with his passing, I hope that that still continues on and that that comes to fruition because I, it's such a fascinating story. Well, Mike, you're speaking to the executive producer. Woohoo! <laughs> It was optioned from the story we did in the Rialto Report. Uh, and to be honest, we were in pre-production um, and uh, about to you know, kick off filming um, for it uh, this spring. So I, I, you know, the, the only information I can give you there is it's up in the air. Um, Alfred clearly was going to be one of the main characters. We did film quite a bit of footage with him. In fact, there's a short film that I, I edited together and put on, on the Rialto Report website today. Um, which which contains some of that footage, but we did film quite a quite a bit of film just on 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 DV, not intending to use it for the, for the film. I don't know if it can be salvaged, but we hope so because it's a good story and, and Alfred deserves to be paid tribute in, in any way we can. Yeah, such a talented man. Yeah, super guy as well. Really nice guy, as you know, Mike. Did I read right that there was an attempt to like an Oscar campaign around Miss Aggie as well? That's something we can hopefully put to rest here. Yes, on the one hand, there was an Oscar campaign in that there was a full-page ad taken out in Variety for your consideration, uh, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress for uh, for Deborah Shearer. Uh, having spoken to a couple of the the producers and money people behind the film, it is it was very much a sort of tongue-in-cheek way of advertising the film. They were rolling in cash. I mean, the film these sort of films did, did well. They had a lot of cash. They wanted to show what they could, uh, you know, that, that this cash brought a little bit of um, authority, if you like, a bit of clout. Uh, and they decided to, to, to post this this ad. 
they never for a moment thought it would be taken seriously. And still to this day, I find some some academics talk about it was in the running for the for the uh, for the Academy Awards, or Damiano felt confident enough in the popularity of the films to put it forward for the Academy Awards. It wasn't really anything like that. It was uh, a glorified ad campaign. But clearly, people are still talking about it, so it must have done something right. That's wonderful. Uh, you know, you got to admire the the way that they uh, would would try and take on the mainstream in that way. I, I, I do enjoy that. I actually have a copy of it framed um, because of that. I was so impressed by the advertising campaign that they had with the just the different posters. There's the one with like the skull shape on it. There's the one with uh, Darby where she's holding the cat. And there's the, the the continuing motif of the hanging baby, which just adds to the creepiness of this movie. <laughs> so like from the O in memories, you have a hanging baby. It's like, wow. But that there were so many different ad types and that you've got the one with all the great reviews and everything. I was just like, wow, they actually had a lot of money behind this. As you were saying, it's, it's great that they could advertise in so many different ways. Yeah, completely agree. You know, there's a lot of great adult uh, film posters from the time. I love the, the mem- memories within Miss Haggy and all the variations, you know, going through all the newspapers at the time, each one uh, shows a, a little different version of it, but with the same themes, it really was a, a great campaign. It's also wild to think that they could get away with the hanging baby poster because it makes it pretty clear like this is a creepy, possibly kind of gothic movie, but also a hardcore film. <laughs> the film had a, an extended life on cable TV, actually, in the early 1980s, um, more so than, than most uh, of the early films. And I'm not sure why that was. If you look through the newspapers of the time, Miss Aggie was playing from sort of 80, 81, right through to the sort of early 90s. And uh, I presume that was the, the softcore version, which uh, I did see a copy of and had about nine minutes removed um, of, of, of hardcore sex. And actually premiered in London, M- made quite a bit of money in London as well uh, when, it was, when it was released there. But the film, I think, was a, you know, w- was a success. Its budget was about 50000 Dollars, which was about twice that of Deep Throat. Still, you know, relatively low budget for, for, for other films of the time, mainstream films of the time, and clearly made uh, made that back in spades. Do you think its success is why he made uh, something like Story of Joanna, which to me is kind of still similar in tone? When I met Damiano, he, he indicated Story of Joanna was really his favorite of his own films. I think he felt that that was most true to his his vision. So I think he was, you know, inspired by by Miss Jones and, and, and Miss Aggie. But but Story of Joanna, I think, was it really reached its uh, its uh, apotheosis. Yeah, it's such an incredible film. It's one that I definitely hope will get a similar restoration. And maybe a projection booth. Well, yes. <laughs> that too. <laughs> All right. I'll see you guys in 2023. All right. Let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. 
I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image? Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. That's right. We'll be back next week with a little bit of a different flavor of adult film as we talk about young, hot, nasty teenage cruisers. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Ashley and Sam. So, Sam, what is happening with you lately? As always, doing episodes of my podcast, Twitch of the Death Nerve, every two weeks. One of our upcoming episodes will also be on a hardcore film, uh, which we do occasionally. And I'm, you know, going to try to squeeze some more in there. And I guess the other thing on the top of my mind at the moment is just I've been doing essays and video essays over on my Patreon and plan to have one on Roberta Finlay, speaking of hardcore, uh, up later this month. And Ashley, how about yourself? 
To be able to report website, obviously, with the podcast articles and, and photographs. Um, I, but I did a second, secondary podcast last year called Once Upon a Time in the Valley, which was about the Tracy Lord scandal in the 1980s. There's the, the biography that uh, we wrote uh, with John Amiro, um, who made Blonde Ambition Every Inch a Lady and so on. Um, that's available from Fab Press. I produced the Netflix docu-series, Crime Scene, Times Square, which dropped uh, about a month ago. I'm very proud of that. And actually have several other TV and film projects in the works that are in, in production right now. Um, so if you like what we do, then um, watch this space, as we say. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the projection booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. This is the Continental Broadcasting System. The name is Holmes. That's about all I can tell you because the rest is a blur. I I seem to have left my memory in another town or another time. I, I can't say for sure. All that I can remember is the clinging fragrance of lavender and and a girl's face that keeps turning away from my mind's eye, turning away as if I had somehow betrayed her. I found myself walking through a doorway. I felt dizzy. Doctor, I... Yes, what is it? I'm very busy. Oh, my God, my dear boy, are you all right? Well, you've chosen a good place to collapse on the couch of the most brilliant psychiatrist Leipzig has ever known. Perhaps if you were to tell me all about it. Yes, maybe that would help. Doctor, they're, they're all trying to kill me. Ah, yes, and, and who exactly are they? I don't know. I can't remember. It's just something I, I feel instinctively. Uh, could I have one of those cigarettes? Ah, but of course. I've never seen cigarettes like these before. Black paper with silver tips. Are they Russian? Uh, yes, yes, Russian. Yeah. That's better, Dad. I mean, Doc. <laughs> I guess that's Freudian. And now maybe you'll be kind enough to tell me where you've hidden the wax figurine of the Kaiser. Not you, too. That's right, Master Rupert. And this gun proves the depth of my sincerity. Listen, I've been overworked lately recording an LP for Epic Records. That and... cover story may have worked on Grossman and Suez, but I happen to know that you are a private detective. I am? Yes, and seeing as we are 37 stories up in a locked room, I would not try any tricks. I won't try any tricks, Doctor, but if you don't mind, I think I'll try the window. What a tremendous stroke of luck. I've landed on a foam rubber trolley car. Trolley car? Then I must be in San Francisco. Yeah, that's the waterfront up ahead. I'll just hop off here. The fog rolls right in with the night here in Frisco. I can hardly see that girl over there staring into the water. She looks familiar. Maybe I should ask her. Funny, I seem to be talking to myself. And why not talk to me, Slim? There she was. The girl you never brought home to mother. Her looks were straight off a calendar, the kind of calendar that gave pool halls a bad name. 
Her dress was poured on her like syrup on a stack of pancakes. Some stack. Got a cigarette, Slim? I'm afraid not. Would you like some sugarless gum? I don't take nothing from no one that I can't give back. Sounds eminently fair to me. I think Someday, that... when you've done what I've done, and you've seen what I've seen, you'll realize you can't buy love. However, it is possible to rent me. Well, uh, how do I... Uh... I'm not hard to come by, Slim. All you have to do is whistle. You do know how to whistle, don't you? Sure. You're impossible to communicate with. She stormed off, leaving the heavy perfume of lavender permeating the fog around me. I was alone. On the contrary, sir. You are far from being alone. My name is Grossman, sir, and I wish to talk to you about a certain wax figurine of the Kaiser. Now that we are alone... Oh, on the contrary, gentlemen, you are far from being alone. What's all this? Ah, my old companion from Istanbul. We meet again, Mr. G, and I believe for the same purpose. I hate to interrupt a reunion, but... Oh, forgive me, Mr. Holmes, sir. Uh, my name is Carl Suez, and I have been representing a competitive bidder for the legendary Kaiser statuette. Well, if you'll tell me what this is all about, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. I, I like talking. By all means, sir, I like to like a man who likes talking to a man who likes to talk about liking talking. <laughs> well, then let's, uh, let's talk about the statue. <laughs> Gad, sir, you are a character. Well, then by all means... Let's talk about the statue. Uh, before you, uh, how shall I say it discreetly, uh, show your cards, Mr. Holmes, may I remind you that uh, my client is prepared to pay the sum in the amount of $35 for information which will lead to the recovery of the statue, which is rightly his. Come, come, Carl. Shall we not meld our mutual interests? <laughs> uh, by all means, Mr. G. I, I was going to make the same suggestion imminently. Then perhaps, Mr. Holmes, you'll be more impressed by the color of our guns. I don't think so, fellas. You see, I've got all of you covered. It was her, all right. Without a word, she waved me into a nearby sedan and pushed the speedometer until we had reached a desolate area outside the city. At last I spoke. Well, are you going to tell me... I did you a favor. I thought maybe you'd return it. Is that all you want? Oh, can't you see when somebody's crazy about you? So crazy that they... Oh, we're here. Talk about old dark houses. My uncle lives here in this foreboding manor that still carries a curse on whoever spends the night under its craggy roof and in which all his family have died suspicious deaths under strange circumstances of a gruesome and revolting nature. Anyway... Call me a fool if you like. But I fear for his life. You mean... Yes. I think someone is trying to murder him. Well, here we are. Uh, good evening, Miss Leland. Good evening, sir. Good evening, Mason. Is my uncle at home and well? Oh, yes and no, Miss Leland. Yes and no, Mason? He is indeed home, sir, but he is lamentably quite dead. Are there any suspects, Mason? Yes, sir. I've taken the liberty of asking them to stay in the study. 
where they all claim to have been at the time of the murder. Uh, perhaps you, uh... Um, I'll do what I can. Um, shall we go to the studies, huh? Rupert, do you have a plan? Yes, I do. The murderer is obviously having fun. But what he doesn't know is that we'll be playing his game, too. Leland, I'm... I'm going to pretend that I know the killer's identity and do the whole detective sums-up speech. Just as I'm apparently about to reveal the name of the murderer, I, I want you to switch off all the lights in the room. With any luck, we'll catch the killer in the act of escape. Brilliant! Congratulations, sir. Let's face them in the study. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Holmes, the celebrated detective. Thank you, Mason, and I'd appreciate it if you would stand over by the fire. Leland? Yes? Since you weren't here at the time of the murder, would you please sit at the piano over by the light switch and play whatever music comes to mind? Ladies and gentlemen, one of us is a killer. I know his identity, uh, or her identity, uh, if he is a woman, which I'm not saying she is, uh, or he isn't. You remember my saying, Leland, that I had been staring some clue in the face. Well... Now I know what that clue was. And now I will reveal to you all that the murderer's name is... Who turned out the lights? Good work, Leland. I'll just turn on the lights and we'll have caught ourselves a... Good Lord. They've all been murdered. Wait a minute. If they're all dead, then... I must be the killer. I fear your deduction is not quite correct, sir. <laughs> Rosman, Suez, you did it. Yes, I'm afraid my associate has managed to kill everyone in the room but you, sir. Sorry, Mr. G. I don't understand. Why kill me? I know nothing exactly, about... Exactly, sir. And we wish to continue your state of sublime ignorance by dispatching you permanently to oblivion. You know too much about our quest to be allowed to survive. Yes, and we are indeed fortunate that you are now standing on a trap door. I'm told you'll die of shock long before now you... Now, wait, sir. Suez, pull the handle of the clock. Please, dear God, I beg of you, don't... Adieu, Mr. Holmes. <laughs> You've chosen a good place to collapse On the couch of the most brilliant psychiatrist Leipzig has ever known Perhaps if you were to tell me all about it Yes, maybe that would help Doctor, they're, they're all trying to kill me Ah, yes, and, and who exactly are they? I don't know I can't remember, it's just something I, I feel instinctively uh, Can I have one of those cigarettes? Ah, but of course I've seen cigarettes like these before Black paper with silver tips Are they Russian? 